Welcome to the Peaceful Power Podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Clausen, and today I have Alyssa Dweck on with us. She is a practicing gynecologist and the chief medical officer of Bonafide. So she's been an OBGYN for over 25 years with a special interest in menopausal health. So welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I would love to kind of just dive right in there with menopause. And, um, you know, I was sharing with you before you're the first guest I've had on about strictly about menopause. So I would love to kind of start with what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you see about menopause? Well, that's a a loaded question. (laughs) So I think the, the misconception or, um, uh, you know, uh, myth that I would like to uh, try to get rid of is uh, the thought that menopause has to be a horrible experience. Because I think since it is an inevitable time and natural life stage, we might as well try to approach it in the most positive way possible and appreciate that there are many, many options to treat the symptoms that can be plaguing for so many people. So I I know that might not be a misconception, but it is something that I'd like to uh, dispel. Yes. Oh, well, what do, um, is there anything that you kind of want to start off with anything in the menopausal women, do they need to know, or maybe leading up to menopause that you can prevent some of those symptoms that might be, you know, what we kind of think about the hot flashes, the night sweats. Yeah. Well, let me start with a couple of definitions, uh, just because I find there's a lot of confusion around the semantics. Menopause is actually one day in time. It is the day when you look back and say it has been 12 consecutive months without a period after the age of 40 and for no other obvious reason. The perimenopause, which I know you've previously covered, are all those years leading up to menopause where hormone changes are occurring, but they may be much more subtle. And for some people, this may be recognizable, for others, not so much, but it could be four to even 10 years of uh, changes in menstruation and other symptoms. In regard to risks for how your menopause experience is going to be, there are some that are sort of uh, innate that we can't control and others that we can. So for example, we have evidence and studies that suggest that there's definitely a genetic component to not only the age that you're gonna go through menopause, but what your experience may be like. So we can turn to our moms if we're lucky enough to be able to talk to our moms about that, to find out what age she went through menopause, whether she had horrific hot flashes, night sweats, or other symptoms of concern. We also can talk to sisters or aunts or or grandmothers if if available. Um, And then ethnicity actually has uh, some uh, um, influence on uh, the menopause experience. So there's a big, big study that many people may have heard of called the SWAN study, which recognized that uh, Black women and Hispanic women actually seem to have a, a longer duration of hot flashes and night sweats and potentially a more severe experience than their Caucasian or Asian counterparts. So that's something that's not really uh, modifiable. But there are modifiable factors. So for example, smoking, uh, you know, smoking makes menopause occur earlier. It also may make for worse hot flashes, night sweats. So that's something that can be worked on. Number two would be uh, lifestyle habits. So diet, exercise, the amount of stress that somebody is under, these are modifiable, maybe not easily, but they are modifiable and can really have influence over the experience. So that's sort of a background. 
Oh, I would love to hear. I had um, a naturopathic doctor on who had said, and I would love to hear if this is kind of the same um, kind of genre to look for the perimenopause. Cause she had said, um, ask your, if you can ask your mom, how old she was when she went into menopause and then subtract 10 years. And that's when you're kind of looking at those perimenopause and when some of those symptoms might start to arise. Is that something that you see as well? Yes, exactly. So, you know, again, perimenopausal time is identified as anywhere from four to 10 years before menopause. So I do agree with that time frame. The only caveat with perimenopause is that menstrual changes may occur. So somebody may skip a couple of menstruations. They may have a change in their flow, a change in the duration, a change in the type of flow or the color uh, or the cramps even. So that's the only thing that goes on during peri perimenopause that we won't see during menopause because bleeding is over. Okay. Okay. And then what about managing symptoms? So like if, you know, hot flashes, vaginal dryness, the microbiome, what are some ways that we can kind of manage some of those symptoms that we might see? Yeah. So I like to, in my practice, kind of start with the uh, conservative approach and then get more aggressive. So we talked a little about lifestyle and I'm happy to go through any details and as much as you like with diet, with exercise and with stress reduction. So I'll leave that aside right now, but I really consider that to be a foundation for everybody and something that people can proactively consider before they even get towards perimenopause because it's, these are just good habits uh, to keep in mind. And we can talk about details if you like. But, you know, so I'll often recommend herbal supplements for, uh, for women. Um, and the company that I am chief medical officer for called Bonafide Health focuses on herbal supplements that are non-drug alternatives for menopausal symptoms. We have one that is specifically for hot flashes called Relizin. We have one that specifically addresses the vaginal microbiome called Clair-V, that's a probiotic. And we also have one that's specifically and is super popular for vaginal dryness called Reverie. And this is a slightly later symptom of menopause, but something that can be quite distressing. Uh, other herbal supplements, um, which are typically called phytoestrogens, are plant-sourced supplements that are estrogen-like, but they are not really estrogen, but chemically they're similar. And these are like your black cohosh supplements or evening primrose oil. And there's a whole gamut of uh, different potentials. And those have been helpful for some people. The reason I bring both of these up and distinguish them is because I have a large population of patients who can't take hormones. And they can't really necessarily with comfort take things that are hormone-like because of their estrogen-sensitive cancers. So that's where the non-drug, non-hormonal, and not phytoestrogen supplements from Bonafide are particularly helpful. Next, we have pharmacologic remedies. Some of the antidepressants are helpful for hot flashes. We have other drugs called gabapentin or things that are related that are, can be helpful for hot flashes. And then we have hormone replacement therapy, which is sort of the first step for some people, but often the last step for many others, because there's a little fear of side effects, cancers, blood clots, cardiovascular things that can occur as a result of hormone therapy. So it's it's not for everybody, but it surely is very helpful and FDA approved for other people. I would love to kind of go down that thread of the hormone replacement therapy. And I know I have 
clients who are, you know, perimenopause and already are like, I'm going to get that because her mom has had a horrible experience. Her grandma, she's like, it's just genetic. And yes. she was like, I know I could flip it for my daughter, but she's like, I'm just not of the, the headspace to do that. And so what are some of that, you know, the pros and the cons of hormone replacement, or, you know, if people have never heard of it, like, what exactly does that mean? Sure. So overall hormone replacement therapy, which we now call menopause replacement therapy, but, or menopausal hormone therapy, um, typically involves estrogen replacement. So that can come in the form of a tablet or a vaginal ring or a cream or even a gel or a patch. Um, and then for people who still have a uterus, it also includes progesterone, another hormone to protect the uterus from overgrowth of tissue, which estrogen can cause. The pros of hormone therapy is number one, it works. So it works for, for hot flashes and night sweats and it works well. It also is an FDA approved co combination of medications for the most part for menopausal symptoms of hot flashes, night sweats, and vaginal dryness. So those are the pros. The cons are a little bit misunderstood, but just to review, there was a study called the WHI done about 20 years ago on hormone replacement therapy. It was actually a study done on loads and loads of women in an effort to see whether hormone replacement therapy might help with heart disease prevention. In fact, they had to stop the study early because it showed an increase of breast cancer in too many participants. Mm -hmm. In hindsight, and years and years later, we realized that the study participants were actually much older than the average menopausal person who's having hot flashes. Mm -hmm. And they were also already at higher risk for some of these uh, events. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, the data has now been reinterpreted and the risk of breast cancer exists, but it may not be as high as what was originally thought. Number two, there's a risk with hormone therapy of uterine cancer. Mm -hmm. This is why we add progesterone to women who have a uterus to help with prevention of that. Number three, estrogen might increase the risk of cardiovascular events, such as strokes, such as blood clot, even heart attack. But again, in choosing the right uh, candidates for hormone replacement therapy, it can be quite helpful. So you really have to pick and choose who you recommend this to. Finally, women with breast cancer or history of breast cancer, women who have a propensity towards blood clot, women who have uterine cancer, which would be less, less women. Um, these are not people who can take hormone replacement therapy. So we really need to have alternatives that are non- hormone uh, related. And that's why I go from the conservative to the more aggressive. Yeah. And the supplements work or you found it has worked just as well for people. I have had excellent results in my patient population with uh, the herbal supplements that I mentioned, particularly relizin. But you know, what's, what's important to note is that so many supplements you know, the supplement world can be a little wild out there. Okay. So what I love about the bonafide products is that we have clinical studies done on real people to suggest safety and efficacy of these supplements. So that goes a long way in the life of a traditionally trained physician such as myself. And that's why I rely heavily on them. And I'm such a, a fan of them. Mm. 
I would love to circle back to the diet, the lifestyle and exercise. Yeah. Cause that's a big piece of the Ayurvedic side of stuff that I do. And I would love to know kind of what are some of those recommendations um, from your end that you are telling people, Hey, these are ways that you could, you know, help prevent some of these symptoms and ease your way into menopause. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. And this, I re- these regimens I recommend for everybody, whether they're going to be hormone people, not hormone people, pharmacologic people or whatnot. Number one diet. So uh, what happens um, uh, over time with age, but also with a deple- depletion of estrogen during menopause is that we uh, lose muscle. We lose muscle mass. This diminishes our metabolism and really gears us up for the potential for weight gain. So this is something that a lot of my patients complain of, particularly about weight around the middle. I recommend, and I think many, many of my colleagues also recommend the Mediterranean style diet. This is not a diet that you go on for two weeks. This is a a lifestyle. It's a way of eating. So I call it a Mediterranean style diet. What does this involve? Lean protein, minimizing red meat, uh, you know, using olive oil instead of butter, um, minimizing salt and using spices instead to flavor food, which again, uh, since this diet was originally intended for cardiovascular health, that helps with things like hypertension prevention and management, um, moderating alcohol intake, plenty of whole grains, fresh fruits, vegetables, getting rid of processed foods, getting rid of as much sugar as you can. And you know something, look, we all have our days where we're going to have that cupcake or candy or whatnot. But for the most part, following this style diet is cardiovascular protective. It protects the immunity and it also uh, is low glycemic naturally. So you don't get those huge peaks and valleys of uh, sugar, insulin, et cetera, which can, by the way, cause hot flashes. So this mm-hmm. is the last thing we want in somebody who's already suffering. So that would be one diet style that I favor. Number two would be intermittent fasting. The standard intermittent fasting regimen is 16-8 in a 24-hour day. So 16 hours spent with no caloric intake other than you know coffee, hydration, tea, that type of thing and then keeping your calorie intake to those other eight hours. This has been shown in clinical studies to help with weight maintenance, but for people who can tolerate this style diet or maybe modify it a little bit so they're not fasting quite as long can really be helpful with with, uh, just the menopausal symptoms in general. So I, I have found those to be my two recommendations. Nice. And what about exercise? Is this something that, um, actually I just had one of my friends who's a personal trainer had said her, she had a client who came to her and was like, her doctor told her to stop lifting weights because she was in menopause and she was like horrible advice, you know? And so can you kind of chat a little bit about your experience with exercise and why would you tell someone, or that's probably bad advice to stop working out? (laughs) uh, Yes. I can't comment on that particular person. So this is what I recommend. You know, we usually try to aim for at least 150 minutes per week of cardiovascular exercise. Um, That can be divided in days. You know, it could be 30 minutes a day. You could do a little bit more in just five days a week, but that's recommended. This is mainly for calorie burning, and this helps with weight maintenance, okay? 
Number two would be uh, weight training, which I absolutely recommend. And this doesn't mean you have to go pump major iron in the gym every day, but you need strength training for various reasons. Number one, it builds more muscle. So you've got that metabolic tissue helping with weight maintenance. Number two, we really worry in menopause about bone loss and osteoporosis. So weight training or weight bearing is going to help with bone protection uh, as much as possible. Number three, flexibility and balance are incredibly important as we age because that's when risk of osteoporosis goes up and falling is something that we want to prevent. So working on flexibility and uh, balance are going to help with prevention of falling later on. Uh, number three, emotional health, it completely relies on some sort of uh, exercise or at least, um, you know, uh, stress reduction can be done in the form of exercise. So for various reasons, I find that exercise is quite helpful in that regimen. Uh, number three would be stress reduction. Now that might come in the form of regular exercise, but for other people, it might be uh, meditation, intense transcendental meditation, or just regular meditation or mindfulness done on an app 10, 15 minutes a day, like Headspace or like Calm, simple ways that busy women can spend 10 or 15 minutes a day in their own zone, trying to manage, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the stress of our lives. Uh, so I think those are three mainstays of uh, health management that I'm, I'm super in favor for perimenopause wise, premenopause, and also menopause. And what about for people who might be suffering from insomnia? I know I've heard a lot of more people, especially the last couple of years, that's been an issue and people's sleep is still a little bit out of whack. Um, what are some yeah. tips that you have around there? Could it be a blood sugar thing or where can people kind of turn for some help with, you know, dealing with sleep issues? Yeah. Look, always make sure there's no medical problem involved. I mean, some people have an obstructed airway and might need to be attended to medically. Number two, uh, you know, uh, I, I usually focus in my office with my patients on sleep hygiene. So there are a couple of things to consider. Number one, ambient temperature. There's nothing worse than sleeping in a super hot room because if you're already suffering with hot flashes at night, this is not gonna help matters. So whether it's with a fan, turning up the air conditioning uh, or opening a window in the cool weather, uh, that can be helpful. And if you have a partner uh, who isn't on your temperature planet, then you've got to figure out a way to um, make sure that uh, you're both comfortable in the bed. Number three, get rid of the screen time an hour before you go to sleep. You know, there are thoughts about the blue light and different brain waves that get stimulated uh, with screen time. So really shut down uh, an hour before sleep so that you can mitigate that. And number three would be alcohol use. So, you know, look, the pandemic really prompted a lot of wine uh, intake uh, uh, with, with so many people and nothing wrong with wine in moderation or alcohol, but it is a sleep disruptor. So uh, moderating that, picking days that you'll drink wine or maybe uh, stay away from it might be helpful to help us sleep. Um, I think that um, if you have a partner that snores, that has to be taken care of. I hear that all the time. Um, and then lastly, uh, pets in the bed. So we love sleeping with our pets, but that does kind of heat up the room a little bit and uh, might uh, worsen hot flashes for those who are suffering. There are, of course, supplements that might be helpful with sleep. I know some people like melatonin, some not so much. Uh, some people might use, uh, you know, like a, um, a sleepy time tea or something along that line. 
uh, and and that might be reasonable. So th those are some general pearls. Yeah, perfect. Um, I kind of want to circle back to the vaginal dryness because this is one that I've been asked and I was like, this is not just my area of expertise. So I would love to kind of yeah. throw it to you and just if, if what can people do about vaginal dryness during those menopause years that maybe isn't just supplements, if they're like, is there anything else you oh, know, that I can offer? There's lots. And, you know, I think the first thing is educate yourself because this is one of those symptoms that people tend to suffer in silence about because they might think maybe they're the only ones who are experiencing this. Many people we've seen in studies that a lot of patients don't come in and bring this up to their healthcare providers, particularly their gynecologist, who's the perfect person to bring this up with. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind. Uh, vaginal dryness is usually a result of two things. First and most importantly, low estrogen. Um, so, uh, that's something to keep in mind. It is a later symptom of menopause. So while people may notice a little bit of sexual change or a little bit of dryness during the perimenopausal or early menopausal years, most people will notice significant changes if they don't take care of it early, uh, you know, during regular menopausal time. Um, number two might be changes to the microbiome, which we can get to, and that can cause a sensation of some vaginal sensitivity. What can be done for vaginal dryness? So other than educating yourself, hydrate well. Number two, consider a vaginal moisturizer. So just like we moisturize our faces all the time, and we wouldn't think of skipping that regimen, there are dedicated moisturizers for the vagina. They can come in the form of a little insert. They can come in the form of a gel that gets plunged in the vagina. They can even be in the form of vaginal estrogen. But because I'm not going to really focus on estrogen right now, uh, Bonafide happens to make a wonderful vaginal insert with an ingredient that's very popular for moisture called hyaluronic acid. And this is a naturally made ingredient. We make it uh, naturally, but it diminishes with age. So the insert can be placed two or three times a week at night, let it dissolve. Hyaluronic acid absorbs tons of moisture and moisture will be replenished and tissue will be uh, really optimized in the vagina with using this. Um, other moisturizers that are made as a gel are also available over the counter and there's loads of them to look at in the drugstore. Number three would be a lubricant to use during intimacy. And there are plenty of different varieties. Uh, I tend to favor one made with silicone and vitamin E, which is uh, very helpful for on-demand use during intimacy. So if intercourse is feeling a little uncomfortable and a vaginal moisturizer is being used regularly, you can also add a lubricant during sexual relations to help facilitate. Perfect. And then I want to circle back to that gut microbiome. Um, you know, how does that kind of play a factor during these years? Yeah. So with less estrogen comes less of the good bacteria in the vagina. And let me back up to a little basic science. So the vagina has a microbiome, just like our skin, just like our gut. The vaginal microbiome is a delicate balance of good bacteria called lactobacilli, which produce lactic acid and acidify the inside of the vaginal environment. This is the normal pH of the vagina. And the vagina naturally contains loads of other organisms, fungi, other bacteria, other organisms, and they all kind of live in a good balance. But what disturbs this balance? Well, sex can, hormone changes can, particularly diminished estrogen, antibiotics might, 
uh, use of hygiene products that are super fragrant or chemically laden can alter the vaginal microbiome. And this causes symptoms, discharge, odor, irritation, itching, even infection. Mm -hmm. So if you have an infection, it needs to usually be treated, and that would be done with your healthcare provider. But a probiotic dedicated towards vaginal health can be super helpful to prevent recurrent infection and help with prevention of the symptoms that go along with a change in the biome, like discharge, odor, and irritation. We actually at Bonafide have done studies, and our latest one, which is super exciting, um, uh, showed that women who had a vaginal odor that they were complaining about but did not have an infection were benefited by taking Claire V. This is the probiotic that uh, Bonafide stands behind. Um, and uh, this study is now ongoing for up to six months and we can't wait to see what the rest of the results will show. But after two weeks, women noted, a lot of women noted less odor. And after four weeks, like 75% of women noted less odor. And these are women in this hormonally changing environment who are noticing vaginal changes, but don't have an infection. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So I want to kind of just, you know, tackle, I think one more topic of, and this is one I've heard quite a bit too, is brain fog and, you know, women who are just like, I just can't quite, things aren't connecting the way that I want them to, mm-hmm. um, you know, what are some, you know, what should we be looking out for? Is there anything we can do to help prevent it? So we're not just living in that brain fog. I know, well, by the time this airs, I will be in my postpartum brain fog. Yeah. <laughs> so I would love to kind of chat about that. Sure. This is actually a pretty common complaint, and I think it's multifactorial and what causes it. Uh, For menopausal women specifically, lack of sleep and lack of good quality sleep are definitely a large part of brain fog. So when you have repetitive nights of waking up multiple times because of physical discomforts of hot flashes, night sweats, I should say, and also maybe to go to the bathroom or whatnot, your quality of sleep uh, is is interrupted. Uh, also duration, obviously interrupted. So trying to work on those sleep hygiene habits and take care of symptoms that make you uncomfortable when you're sleeping uh, can be very helpful. Number two, we often talk about doing things to exercise your mind to keep things focused. Puzzles, learning a language, dealing with music or uh, you know reading a lot, things that keep your mind active are going to be helpful. Uh, Third would be managing the diet because super high sugar, processed foods, they're going to affect the brain, of course, as well. Most women who come into my practice really complaining of very serious brain fog, like they forget where they left their car, they're having trouble with names. You know, I'll sometimes recommend getting a a real checkup to make sure that there's nothing medical or organic going on. And so if somebody's nervous about dementia or Alzheimer's or it runs in the family, Most of the time, it's nothing to worry about, but it is something that I will uh, send on to the internal medicine doctors for evaluation, just to be sure. Perfect. Perfect. Well, if people are wanting to connect with you and, you know, maybe even learn more about the supplements that you have, um, where can they find you? Yes. Thank you for that. Uh, Please check out Bonafide's website. It's hellobonafide.com. There's information about me. We have tons of educational materials on every subject and more that you and I have spoken about. And I will say that the content is vetted mostly by me, but also by other, uh, you know, key opinion leaders in the field of menopausal health. So there's a lot of medical and um, 
uh, expert input. So I think that's most helpful. And then of course, the supplements can be uh, learned about as well. Perfect. And people, can people purchase those right on the website or do they need a prescription or how does that kind of work? No, these are all over the counter, which is amazing. They are conveniently mailed to home so that you don't have to worry about going out or, uh, uh, hitting the stores and being overwhelmed by the, you know, uh, products on the shelves that you may not have so much information about. And, um, you know, they make it very convenient. The other thing I like to say is that we have a very uh, robust customer service um, uh, group who deals with all kinds of questions. Uh, some of them even are escalated to me as a, the chief medical officer, just to make sure that people are not concerned about their symptoms and that they're taking the right supplements that are uh, for their needs. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I'll put that all in the show notes. Well, I just have one final question for you. I always like to end with a weekly challenge. And then when I have a guest on, I have you throw the challenge out to everyone. So what would you like everyone to work on this week? Wow. Uh, I guess my weekly challenge is going to be, why don't you initiate the uh, exercise program that I have uh, recommended? So I think the 150 minutes of cardio you know, strength and uh, uh, flexibility and uh, weight training a couple of times a week. And I think that after a week or two, so this will be my biweekly challenge, uh, it will be self-sustaining. Mm, I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's such a pleasure to get to talk to you and um, for you to share your wisdom with us. So thank you again. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you everyone. And go out there and spread your peaceful power.